Welcome back. And Andy is no longer allowed to do episodes for us anymore. First off, what's wrong with my episodes? Dude, why does it take you forever to tell a story? It takes so long. Listen, Elliot, you wanted a podcast. You're getting a podcast in like multiple sections. I'm basically Charles Dickens. Like I get paid per episode. So like we're going to drag the sucker out as long as my tongue still works. Don't make a joke. Don't make a joke. <laughs> nope. I will just state facts. Ready? First off, you're not Charles Dickens. Second, we don't get paid per episode or at all. Yes, we don't get paid, Elliot. I feel like we do this because we're masochistic <laughs> to the core and apparently sadists too for bringing others down with us. Hey, guys. So okay, we- fine. I like to tell a story at like a, a leisurely pace. It adds character to the show. I just want to know what happens before the audience loses interest. The point is... We had fun along the way. All right. You hear that, Disney? We're coming after you. Okay. Intro. Welcome back to the Purple's Almanac. I'm Elliot here with Andy and our co-co-host, Matt. Howdy. Is that co-co-host? I don't know how to say it. Like co-co-host? I mean, that would make sense for you, the co-co-host, because- Co-co-host. You're you're brown, like the the skin color, co-co. All right. Where did we leave off in the story? Uh, Chapingo. Like, it sounds like a Mexican dish, but it's actually a school. And uh, if you guys recall, our boy Ephraim had gone there to be a instructor and basically stir the pot. We also know that students were getting really mad because, you know, it's the 60s and students were mad. I mean, that's true. But also, there was a lot of stuff going on, right? The region was experiencing like a lot of quiet optimism because of the Green Revolution. But beneath that, there was some like really not as nice stuff bubbling. You might call it revolutionary stuff bubbling. Basically, the songs of the campesinos that they represented were really like echoing off the crumbling walls of the the dated and undersecured and underfunded. It's just you're having too much fun here, Dick and Dickens. Yeah. Anyways. Is that what you said? Yes. Dickens. Charles Chickens. Oh, there we go. I'm Charles Chickens. Done. Oh, God. That's... All right, just keep going. We got to just blow past that one. It's going to be a long episode. This is going to be a long episode. The chickens were roosting at their usual hour. The spring sun rose in the west, east, rise in the east. (laughs) This is is going No, in spring it goes backwards. Now you know know he's drunk and he's lost all credibility. Continue. Yes. Yes. Do you like my New England old fashioned? What you got? What you got in there? What's a New England old fashioned? It's an old fashioned except maple syrup and black walnut bitters. Oh, okay. That's fantastic. Cool. Right? It's delicious. It's been my drink of 2023, which reminds me Raytheon, our sponsor. Already? <laughs> no. Um, so the point is with this whole like Chapingo thing, there's like a lot going on, and the failures of the school was like a really easy target to direct that frustration at and you know like keep in mind this is central america um you know it is we're talking internationally there's a lot going on you know you've got like the bay of pigs going on um you know obviously the rising cold war a lot of anti-american sentiment was really fomenting and like directed at like the rockefeller foundation in chapingo which like had a lot of valid reasons to be criticized as we've kind of talked about And it got to the point where the students actually asked the representatives from the Rockefeller Foundation to basically, like, not give talks at the school. Like, they're like, just like, please, please just don't. Just don't. I mean, that's kind of 
it's kind of weird for them to like keep giving the talks after they cut all the funding out. Yeah, I guess they thought it was worth like putting up a good show. And also, I think they were still invested in Mexico, just not necessarily the schools. Mm -hmm. So they'd kind of changed their uh, their process of what um, what they valued. So in 1962, the first formal complaint came from the student body. First, they demanded that the school director, Enrique Espinoza, be removed from his position. Don't know what he did. They were clearly pissed off. Second, they wanted the directive council, the student faculty group that decided on major college decisions since 1938, to be more involved in the decision making with all of this new growth. If you remember, that was that organization that was really important when President Cardenza said he would listen to the school and gave them basically everything he wanted. His secretary of agriculture, remember the guy that tried to oust him like a couple years later? Mm-hmm. So he gave him like this power with the student faculty group. The students realized that it had no functional power, and they wanted to fundamentally change that. On top of that, the students demanded that the college funding increase so they had resources since they didn't have that Rockefeller money. Okay, so it sounds like a student union. I think I had one of those back in school, but the battles they chose to engage in were, let's say, questionable. And then after they really, I don't know, got their feet under them, they started to ask good questions. And then I I guess they got batted down by the school administration uh, time and time again. So what happened in the case uh, in Chapingo? Yeah. So I think like all of us, like I was actually, I don't know if you knew this, dude, I was the president of my class in college. I did not know that. Did I ever tell you that? Wow, I don't know that either. I ran ironically and won. Wow. That's actually pretty funny. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. that. Oh, yeah, you, so fun. F- oh, you told me you ran, but you never told me you won. Oh, yeah, I won. And the class, whatever it is, the, the office or whatever, um, yeah, I won. And then they're like, all right, so what are we doing? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, I look didn't, at me. I didn't Dude, think this through. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think it would get this far. I was like Trump, basically. Like, I never thought they would actually let me in. I'm imagining and, uh, Andy doing like the Napoleon dynamite campaign strategy. Just building cakes. Huh? Building cakes. No, the dance. Oh, the dance. I was thinking, I was thinking more of Pedro. He's more of a cake builder to me. I genuinely don't remember what I did for my campaign. It was something really lazy. I can tell you that because I didn't, I was like, oh, this is going to be funny. And then like after five minutes, I was like, this isn't funny anymore. And like, I had a couple of friends. I was like, no, 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 this is cool. And like, then they did the rest of the work. And then like, we had to meet once a month or every other week or something. And I'm like, why am I here? And like the class before us, I was like preparing us for like our senior year was like, here's all the things you need to do to be ready for senior year. And I was like, I'm not going to be here. I don't care. This this doesn't have anything to do with solo, does it? No, it doesn't. But it does speak to how student unions are understood here in the United States versus places like Mexico, or at least the way these students thought it would be. I, I don't think we expected our student unions to actually do anything right like we all understood it was just a okay you you uh handle the money for like some school dance or something and that was like basically it whereas they they legitimately wanted power within the school which i think is interesting and speaks to how different i think young adults feel in other parts of the world compared to the u.s in response to the student complaints espinoza resigned which i think is really powerful in some ways because of the fact that like They had enough power to make someone resign. That's pretty cool. 
the other two issues that we just covered that they wanted the council to have more power and increases in funding weren't giving any even like acknowledgement. In fact, the response from the government was that the prep school, which helped high school kids from poor communities get into the college, was closed instead. Okay, so they got placated to a little bit. They got one out of three, and then they just sort of got ignored. I guess they did well. It sort of seems like they made an action to make it look like they did something, but they didn't really do anything. So it's sort of not a stalemate, but just, you know, what's the word? Two steps forward, one step back? Sure. We'll go with with that. that. I mean, minus the prep school thing, I think it was probably as good as you could have ever expected. Like, you got something. We never got anything. Cool. Coincidentally, though, the next day after the demands were reciprocated in terms of, like, Espinosa resigning, news to make Chapingo the biggest, newest agriculture school in Latin America broke, and the student body suddenly was less concerned about their other issues. They became quietly optimistic that things would uh, improve again. Okay, so... Refocusing on Zolo for a second, was he like helping to contain, like when he was there, was he helping to contain these concerns or was he sort of like fanning the flames? So he advocated for more funding. What his role was in this, we don't know. But I do think like if we understand what he was like in the classroom, we can really start to unpack what kind of impact he might have had on the student body as a whole. The day he arrived in 1953, his first day on campus, Ephraim Hernandez showed up you know, about a, sh- a decade from the shit show we're about to discuss. Professors at the time, you know, they typically wore ties, sport coats, dress shoes. You, you know the deal, the, the look of the professor. To his first class, instead, he wore uh, a green pinstriped suit with a collared polo underneath and moccasins. The pants... Somehow, like, I got to wonder about this because, like, it got documented that they had a noticeable hole in the rear. Like, how big was this hole that, like, somebody was like, we need to remember this for the future. This is an important detail, right? Like, are we, like, you're not talking about, like, a little, like, stitch hole that's a couple and maybe half an inch or something. You're talking, like, full boxers, right? Now, on his first day, he wrote his name on the chalkboard, instructed his students to take out a piece of paper, and he administered a quiz on the first day of class. Brutal. I mean, it sounds kind of fun. All I can picture is like, I don't know, we'll we'll say like a a Mexican version of Hunter S. Thompson, but still played by Johnny Depp, like in Fear and Loathing, just a little older, maybe even the the lawyer, but still also played by Benito del Toro. I mean, but very college professory. Yeah, yeah, sort of weirdly, like if you made like a trashy version of Dead Poet Society or something. Yeah. We'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) Despite the fact that he was kind of this disaster and this oddball, he was also uh, universally understood to be the the toughest teacher on campus and not above, like, even yelling and swearing at students. Uh, One student, Ramon uh, Mariaca, student during the 80s, recalled visiting Hernandez's office to retrieve a thesis draft and found it in the trash can. She got scolded at with cursing and was told that she should not be turning in garbage posing as a thesis. For those who understood that he was he had this like very gruff personality that was like very, you know, we might say like working class, uh, like Bruce Springsteen-ish. And for those who showed effort, they were able to get past that and realize like that he cared unlike any other instructor on campus. These students became known as the, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, 
Zolotzitianos. Can you do that, Elliot, for me, Mr. Spanish? Zolotzitianos. There you go. That sounded very Italian. I'm very proud of you. You got it. The X's and the Z's, man, they throw me off. So our boy Maestro Zolo would uh, give money to his students during when they were, you know, hard up for cash. He lent his car out when they went into labor. He attended movies with them, paid for meals, and shared a number of experiences, including going to bars. So he lent his car to someone one time as a favor, and I just I feel like there's a story there where someone was in labor. I think it was like a famous person, like Daniel Ponce de Leon. You guys know the boxer. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe that's why there's a boxer that's like 30 years younger than him. That's also Ephraim Hernandez. Because <laughs> if you if you Google his name, like that's the first Holy thing that comes shit, up. That actually lines up. Right. Wow. Even if that, even if this isn't the case, I think we should just try to. It's canon now. Yeah, it's done. Put, Put it in the Wikipedia in the page. Yeah. New nobody history. knows. Nobody knows. No. Anyways, to get back to what we're talking about, so part of his class, unlike one of, a lot of the criticisms that he made about the school, where he said students are learning and not learning to apply, they're just becoming textbooks that can spit out information. For him, class debates were mandatory. His point was to make students deal with like abstractions and really difficult questions. It wasn't about being able to spit out knowledge. It was about being able to understand the concepts behind it. One of his students, Aaron Estrada, once had an exam in his class that asked for the definition of God. Okay, so you can't really get that wrong. You're right. It's just about the discussion and about being able to understand both sides. Are plants like that? Is corn, is corn like that, Andy? Corn is God, and if you understand how to philosophically construct a God, you can understand where corn came from. Well, you can just- Nailed it. I think he gets an A in class. Matt, don't, don't even respond. I don't want him to go deeper. All right. I just wanted to hear more about this corn god. I know. It's it's so... I know you're curious, right? God, not not all... a corn god. God as corn. Think. First off, maize. Keep up. We're right. in Mexico. Maze. Have some respect. Lo siento. <laughs> Mi amigos. Yes. So, unsurprisingly, field trips with Zolo were, you could say, legendary. This was partly because he, as we t I think we'd mentioned in one of the previous episodes, had this habit of kind of going off the beaten path and would end up someplace and be like, I guess we're spending the night here. And also because he would like go out on late night drinking binges with the students at nightclubs. This guy rules. Yeah, right. So I was right about the fear and loathing thing, but still as Johnny Depp. Go on. So when they were actually doing the academic part of their trips, peasant groves were the greatest sources for learning without fail. Students had to approach campesinos and ask questions. They would ask things like, why do you dig to that specific depth in the soil? What is the use of this plant? If you do not consume the plant or use it as forage, is the plant decorative or does it have a religious value? What other plants are grown in this region? What is the indigenous name of the plant? Anytime a student would ask him, you know, with questions about the plants, he would just basically say, Go ask the campesino farmers. They know more about the plant than I or you. Instead of like kind of teaching them directly, he was like trying to teach them how to learn from the campesinos. Exactly. Those who can't teach make those who don't know teach themselves. Everyone knows that. I bet you got that on a cookie. Fortune cookie, yes. Wait, so is Golden this... Panda RIP. <laughs> is this why you were a teacher? Yeah, uh, let's 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 uh, ignore that question. Pleading the fifth. 
I guess that's also why he's not a teacher now. See, I could be philosophical too. <laughs> See? Uh, thank you, Elliot. You finally paid off. 148 episodes. They finally caught up with you not knowing how to teach. Yep. Elliot pays off the big on the big day. So um, basically, he was the weird, eccentric dude who was too famous to be challenged. So his colleagues weren't surprised when he became one of the strongest advocates for major curriculum changes at Chapingo when talks for doing so began in 1962. That February, he and some colleagues began reviewing curriculum plans at universities in the United States, the Soviet Union, and even other agricultural colleges in Mexico. A couple of them are private. That's going to be a big deal in a little bit. Now, this is where we see him really start to develop some of what becomes his core synthesis that uh, play out in the next couple decades for him. He argues that technology's main purpose, in quote, is the application of the available basic knowledge. Consequently, education aims to give learners the information known in a field while providing for the application of this information towards a methodology for solving a practical problem and towards facilitating time and resources to acquire the know-how for solving the problem, end quote. But I'm guessing it was in Spanish. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, w it was in Spanish. But the takeaway really is that technology is supposed to basically assist in giving you the tools. Not being the solution to yeah, the problem. Yeah, exactly. Right. I understand. And he continues saying, in quote, research, however, involved the generation of new basic knowledge and skills. Scientific education aims to give pupils the basics in different fields, provide a methodology and skill set for managing ideas, and teach the scientific method in science's philosophy, end quote. Now, he argued that there's a barrier between technology and research, and Chapingo needed to figure out how to cultivate both what are called technicos, which are the technical assistants that would go out in the field, as well as researchers. And these were not necessarily the same thing or didn't learn the same thing. He continued on to say, few people work in an area that straddles both fields, but to produce capable graduates, Chapingo needs to differentiate the two concepts and more effectively teach students. So... I feel like in a, a lot of like, you know, US extension programs, the, those really aren't too separate. I mean, there are like technical service providers and like agricultural researchers, but I feel like there's, that is a much greater overlap here or yeah, in, in the US than it is or than what they're like trying to cultivate there. Yeah, I mean, the thing is about what they were doing is it actually pulled so heavily from our extension school model, but they didn't have the resources for the academic piece that we think of like with conventional like master's PhD programs in agronomy that we have. Not to say what we have as a system is very good or particularly like something that should be replicated. That's a whole other discussion, but they didn't even have what we have in terms of like this technical piece and this research side. What ended up happening is as these preliminary talks about Plan Chapingo, this like redevelopment of Chapingo as this multi-program, multi-college university center for agriculture, he was very, you could say, cautiously optimistic that his membership on the directive council would help guide the transformations to take place that he wanted to see to address some of these concerns. By that summer, when this program began, or plans for it began. More partnership grants from the Rockefeller Foundation came in. And uh, 
He made it clear that he thought the school should be in charge of who received the scholarships, not the foundation. Because, you know, traditionally, when the Rockefeller Foundation gave money, they basically did what they wanted. So unsurprisingly, when he said maybe we should control the money, he was basically ignored. Absolutely shocking. Even more shocking, the council in charge of Project Chapingo, this massive new change to the school attempted to reduce the student-faculty ratio of the school's council in order to take more power away from that student body. Okay, so they were playing petty games? Play petty games, win petty prizes. What about that petty cash? What about that petty cash? You don't get petty cash with Rockefeller, come on. So, obviously, the news of the students losing power in this uh, council that they'd very explicitly asked for more power in didn't go great. Students, given, again, everything going around them, were, like, very suspicious of international manipulation, code word American, but the state overseers promised it was in their best interests, and the state wouldn't lie to them. No, never. No. So, unsurprisingly... Our boy Zolo stayed very on brand and uh, continued asking some very critical questions that were more to make them look bad than to actually ask a question about how these new programs would address the student needs and how they're going to address the need for more interdisciplinary classes. Oh, speaking of interdisciplinary. Yes, Elliot. I've heard ads coming up next are quite interdisciplinary. Can an ad be interdisciplinary? I don't know. And I guess we'll find out. How much did you get paid to say that, Elliot? Nothing. We still we still don't get paid anything, Andy. Oh fuck, I forgot. It's a Rockefeller scholarship. I wouldn't I wouldn't lie to you. I'm just like the state. Oh man, we gotta come up with the prole Rockefeller. Prolefeller, Rockaproler. I don't like either of them. I think we need a break. Yeah, commercial. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Thanks for coming back. I still didn't want to. I know, buddy. You didn't have to, listener, but you did, and we appreciate it. But you did. It. We, I, we all appreciate I you. I see you. I mean, not literally, like you're in your car or something. I, I don't know. It's an audio medium. Wouldn't it make more sense to be like, I hear you? I Yes, Elliot. That's why you get paid the big bucks. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so over uh, the next year, Basically, all of these different roadblocks just keep coming up around funding, autonomy, resources for students, and so much more. Basically, things didn't get better. Zolo and his classic piss-everyone-off retorts renamed Plan Chapingo publicly to anyone that he spoke to, Plan Ford, since Ford was one of the major backers of the project. I mean, so it seems like the Americans at the time and Maybe it's part of what makes the country the country. Holy shit, history's crazy. No, but they get involved in everything. 
and and like everybody's goings ons they're they're always involved in it it's the same americans everywhere it's capitalism so you think everything in america was fixed by how involved they are everywhere else right well it is fixed for them for us meh yeah would you say america's on a fixed income (laughs) Yes, that is the only fixed America has, is that income. So obviously the Americans showing up in Chapingo did not go unnoticed. Our good friends that were in the student newspaper began writing very Marxist critiques of the philanthropy of international corporations and warned other countries in Central America and South America, which were also partnering with Rockefeller, Ford, and the rest that we, I, I don't know if we talked about them, DDT and... I don't know if DDT was still around at this point. They might not have been. John Deere, you know, all all of the the brands that we think of as part of agriculture at this time were basically funding all of this because, you know, Green Revolution, we're going to give you the the joys of American agriculture. Basically, their point was to like warn them that when you let these people in, you will lose your capacity to, you know, own the process of growing your own food in your own country. But Things continued to worsen despite their dire claims and uh, like clear criticisms of the Americans. Officials continued to keep students out of the loop, and students basically retaliated by hosting town halls to let the general public know about what's going on with the school and, you know, the fact that the school is basically selling out to the Americans. All right. So they were holding their own town hall meetings to let people know what's going on. Yeah, that sounds like a high level of organization. I my student my student government had we had like a little room in the student union building, but it was pretty tiny. And like no one cared. No. And, no, and if they left campus to talk to people outside of campus, they wouldn't have cared. Also, no. Yeah, I mean, college kids aren't real adults or members of the community, so no, you know. everyone knows that because like, they don't make any money. Um. Yeah, and this is really important, and we're gonna see. While this episode is about Solo, it's also about looking at how these students were able to be very effective at dictating national policy change. And like, there's some lessons that we should be taking away, people that are listening. You know, one of the things to keep in mind is that this college was in a rural space, right? College education kind of in the United States stands in direct defiance to the values of like many of rural spaces, right? Think about like, if you live on a college campus in like very rural South United States, that community does not give a shit what those college kids think or say, right? And the values are often very different. That's like kind of concerning, right? Like we that we we don't have this really healthy relationship with our college students and the communities that they live in, right? Yeah, I guess it's it's gross, but it's definitely American. It, it's very American, concerningly American. So as construction began and promises of autonomy between the organizations that would exist in that same space, these multi-colleges with the state government, like all this synergy kind of shit that they promised. Yeah, I kind of doubt. Yeah, you should doubt it. They were trying to send kum- I was going to say kumbaya, but never mind. Yeah, no. Kumbaya. Spanish I didn't joke. want to give it to you. That's why. <laughs> Just never mind, Andy. Okay, so basically all the promises that were given to students about feedback and surveys never materialized, and it became pretty quickly obvious the council had no plans to respect any of the needs of the students at all. At the same time, the council promised 10 million pesos. That would be specifically for the professors at the school. To bribery is pretty cool. 
Yeah, that was basically it. They tried to buy off the students. And when the students weren't happy with the fact that instructors were getting a little bit more money, the council's solution was to offer the students an option to pick where the new livestock building would be. So they got that. I'm like, where do you want, where do you want hell to be? Where do you want the cows to shit? Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Because you're going to be raking them out. That's where it's going to go. And these like very meaningless but symbolic gestures are basically all they ever got as students. The prep school was reopened, probably with the plan from the day it closed to do it later on as a chess move. Money kept coming in to students to you know, for new projects here and there. But at no point in any of this process was the school in charge of any of the money. It's like, uh, it's like Ricky, when he finally gets money, it's like, I'm going to pay you $100 to fuck up. <laughs> Basically, yes, that was Ford. And this kept going on through 1966. And that's about when things start to take a turn. In 1967, the Ministry of Agriculture brought the Cold War to the school in February. Ricardo Acosta, the SAG vice minister, a name we're going to talk about quite a bit because he does not like Zolo for what he does, began asking for the identity of writers for a leftist newspaper on campus. Same people that gave us those great articles about don't trust fucking Ford, everyone else. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure it was like totally unrelated. He just wanted to talk, right? Just wanted to talk, totally unrelated. At the same time, students at Hermanos Escobar, an agricultural college in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, were finalizing a scheme to That was perfect. I did perfect. good. Oh, mwah, look at that. They were finalizing a scheme for taking over their college through force. Hermanos Escobar had similar problems as Chapingo with the added benefit of being a private school, but also receiving tons of state funding for improvements that never materialized. Okay, so they got a whole bunch of freedom, it sounds like. Yeah, right? Isn't that awesome? It's cool. I like freedom. I love freedom. The students at Hermanos Escobar staged what Martel, one of the organizers later called a revolution on May 8th, 1967. He and others arrived to campus that morning with hundreds of flyers and, importantly, 200 baseball bats. Now, restaging their own version of Martin Luther's hanging of the 95 thesis, the leaders hung a notice at Hermanos Escobar's gates indicating that the college would remain closed while a meeting took place in the school's auditorium. Students at the gathering debated whether or not they should shut down their college. By the time the discussions had ended and a vote had taken place, 90% of those who had voted agreed to support a closure and decided that the university would remain inaccessible until the federal government took over management of the institution. Those with baseball bats cleared people off campus, took control of the school's entrance, and began patrolling on the grounds. This rebellion initiated a movement for the federalization of a premier private college in arguably Mexico's most capitalist region and secured control over the same institution through force. Direct action gets the goods. I mean, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, they, they went like very Sopranos on this. Now, this is really important because it plays into what happens at Chapingo. It is like the first domino in what becomes like a huge part of uh, Zolo's legacy. They didn't just like take over the school and then like wait for something to change. They committed to hunger strikes. They did public forums reaching out into their community and asked other schools, very important, to shut down in solidarity for better schools for everyone. The biggest concern of the governments was whether or not Chapingo, the largest and most important college for uh, agriculture, would follow suit. Ooh, foreshadowing. What happens, Andy? What happens? What do you think happens, Matt? 
does the story get better? I'm guessing it gets harder. It, it gets harder. So when news hit Chapingo, the student body debated support and administration reminded the students that the government just couldn't federalize private schools. You know, I feel like we've heard that about other things in this country, that the government just can't do that, student loans. So they couldn't privatize the school like uh, Hermanos Escobar. Yeah, so it's not like communally held lands or anything. Uh, think of, I guess, try to think, think of poor people having to sell their eighth house. After numerous debates, the Chapingo student body agreed to go on strike alongside their fellow students at Hermanos Escobar under the broad framework of mistreatment by the powers that be for proper education. Once the government found this from informants, they quickly agreed to sit down for a meeting within the next week, but their efforts to quiet the situation were too late. Students from Chapingo begun to hang red and black protest flags outside the school's gates, suspended classes, and took over the campus. More importantly, the shutdown included all the government facilities that were part of the majestic project Chapingo. Within 48 hours of Chapingo's closure, the strike also became a topic among members of the National Federation of Technical Engineers, the National Center for Democratic Students, as well as the Mexican Communist Party. Now, these quote-unquote Naro students canvassed city streets to publicize the protest via megaphones, and they also collected donations one day after strikers received threats about the military being unleashed on protesters. Damn, so this escalates quickly. Yeah, I feel like uh, bringing in the military for a school, well, yeah, doesn't sound uh, like a fun time. Well, it's not ideal, It no. sounded like they wanted the government to come in, but I don't think this is what they had in mind. Yeah, wrong, wrong bit. <laughs> Yeah, wrong wrong part. You get what you ask for. It's like rubbing a genie's lamp when you fuck with the government, all right? Yeah, monkey's paw, <laughs> the Mexican agricultural government. Yes. So reports from the next couple days detailed the strikes reached by June 20th. The University of, uh, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Mikoakin was shut down. 33 rural schools in several states halted classes. Hundreds of supporters took to Guanajuato's streets to ask for donations. In Oaxaca, State College shut down, and local Coajito Bank employees began a donation campaign for the strike. And in Mexico City, flyers denounced government officials' refusal to negotiate with students. 10,000 students were locking down colleges across the country, and protesters claimed they expected 300,000 college attendees everywhere to support their cause if the military intervened in the conflict. A protest that began with baseball bats in early May had quickly transformed into a national news item that basically was a national youth movement by mid-June. Okay, so could you imagine the American people coming together to support a small group of people like this at a school? Because I can't. Yeah, no, it's really it's really kind of sad when you think about it. Yeah, like this is like wild and like a reminder of how how disorganized we are and how little, I don't want to say autonomy, how little like class solidarity we have, right? You think it's because of fluoride in the water or should we go to a commercial? <laughs> I'm drinking my fluoride straight right now. So maybe a commercial. Got to let this filter out. Hey there, it's me, Crazy Norm, down at Normal Norm's Nut Emporium on John Brown Drive. We're going nuts for nuts in Nutty November. We've got big nuts, small nuts, chestnuts, ground nuts, nut butter, buttery nuts, nut milk, milky nuts, nut cream, creamy nuts, and the for the late night crowd, chocolate-covered CBD, deep-fried nuts. 
Want to join the Nutstravaganza? Nut up and join the Nut Posse. Join other members and get your sack of nuts pounded for free whenever you come in and make the creamiest nut milk you've ever had in your own kitchen. Crazy Norm's Nut Emporium, 420 John Brown Drive or online at fortpearls.com. So unsurprisingly, the government leveraged all of the tools at its disposal. They went with the typical things. They claimed the students had abandoned farmers across the country. The students didn't know how good they had it, that the students' reports of malnutrition from hunger strikes were fictitious. And, you know, if they'd been serious, they would have sat down with government officials already. And, of course, they blamed the permanent troublemakers. Those gosh darn communists. Exactly. Now, immediately after their vote to join the strike, the Chapingueros coordinated patrol teams that guarded campus 24 hours a day during the school's closure. They also designated teams to clean campus, to help with laundry, to take care of meal prep, you know, all the day-to-day type of tasks. In relation to the latter task, the meal prep, those who refused to leave campus feasted on uh, poultry and cattle that had belonged to the college and received provisions from sympathetic professors. I know at least one. For those students who detested the over-the-top military atmosphere in Chapingo, the suspension of food deliveries provided them poetic justice because they ate a prized horse, actually, that belonged to one of their drill instructors. So everyone who stayed at Escuela Nacional had to work, said uh, Francisco Roman de, de la Vega, in quote, those who did not work could not be fed, according to him. Everything fell on the students. I guess they got so hungry they could eat a horse. That's <laughs> God damn it, Matt. I'm yeah. so mad I didn't think of that. Yeah, I can't believe you didn't think of that. From now on, when you're doing pronunciations, I'm just going to tell you to pretend it's Italian. That's, I mean, the whiskey helps, but yes. Yeah. That also helps. Yeah. God damn it. I'm so mad at that. Good job, <laughs> Matt, but I'm mad at you at the same time. Not your fault, but I'm mad at you. <laughs> So yeah, uh, you know, very 60s counterculture energy, right? Yeah, I've seen lots of people eat horses and they like (laughs) got a few at Woodstock. I mean, Woodstock is actually named after the uh, Stockington horse, which was the common feast of, I don't know, is there a Stockington (laughs) horse? I don't know anything about horses. Why are you looking at me? I don't know shit about horses. I I have not heard of a Stockington horse. Oh, fine. All right. You think you've like- I've seen a horse shit. Yeah. But I don't know shit about horses. Well said. Well said. So what I th- I think is really insightful from this is we see this frustration bubble up into like meaningful action, right? These people are actually doing things. And, you know, you could argue that like what they're doing isn't a permanent solution, at least like they can't keep the school like this. But like they're doing things and making it work and trying to figure it out as they go and getting involved in their community. Now, if we think about like what was going on in places like the United States with Woodstock and, you know, the summer of love and all this shit, like they're like, oh, we're revolutionary because we just fuck each other. Yeah. It sounds like a bunch of people that just took LSD. Yeah, it basically was. And in Mexico, we see like literally the nerdiest fucking people, agronomy students, like literally put the brakes on education across the country. They literally shut down education. Like, that's wild. And, like, the fact that they were able to get, like, collective support from the community is something, you know, we just spoke about the fact that that would be hard to imagine here in the United States. They did that while also doing all this other stuff, while Americans were just, like, doing drugs and calling that revolution. 
like it, it speaks to like this stark contrast between like the organizational capacity at the time in places like Mexico versus what was happening in the United States. And the strikers themselves, you know, the whole point, or I don't even want to say the whole point, the strike itself and its ability to catch fire spoke to the fact that like these problems really existed, right? And it also points it to the fact that as long as this educational infrastructure stayed poor, there was going to be more problems because otherwise the rural community wouldn't have stood behind those students. For example, at a rally in Ciudad Juarez on June 7th, Jose Luis Escobedo told listeners that the strike was, in quote, the people's fight because Chihuahua and Mexico stood to benefit from improvements in colleges, end quote. So it was always about the community, and it wasn't just about the students themselves. Yeah, so it seems like the the strike was for everyone, like not just themselves. And, you know, that seems like a pretty solid strike tactic. Yeah, I don't think you could get anybody here in America to buy that if you were selling it to them. So even if it were true, I don't know. I don't think anybody would take would I don't know. That's just me. You don't want to listen to a 19-year-old college kid, Elliot? I mean, do they have a prize horse I could eat? That's <laughs> <laughs> a deal breaker. Bring bring me the horse and we'll talk. Yeah, I won't, bring me I won't the look horse. it in the mouth. I'll just eat it. It's a gift. <laughs> God damn it. I am not the comedian today and I don't like it. No, you're crushing the pronunciation. You stay on your train. Stay on your tracks, buddy. Stay in your lane. That's what I tried stay to say. Stay in my lane. Stay in <laughs> my train. I tried to say tracks and lane at the same time and it came out train. I think the booze is working, boys. The booze. Uh, and that was basically like the whole idea behind what they were doing, that that the the message would resonate through the community. They fundamentally linked their cause with the the campesino, the the peasants that were farming the countryside. At a rally in Ciudad Juarez in on uh, June seventh, Jorge Hernandez took the microphone to say that he and his comrades fought for in quote a better education that trained agronomists to better serve campesinos end quote. Awesome. So he's got all about the PR. He's got that spin. Sounds like a great public speaker. Sounds like he's doing it right. Good job for yeah. you, Jorge. Good job. Yeah. Now to to bring this like methodology to 2023, you know, we can look at like the student loan thing that we've already brought up once to see like how really botched opportunity there was to recognize how having fewer people with student loan debt is better for everyone from people who are competing for jobs with people who need second jobs to creating more discretionary income to keep our you know economy going. And like th- there's a lot of reasons for everyone to care about young people not being debt for going to college. Instead, it was just basically like disapproved by everyone, but like young progressive voters. Yeah, it's a lot of um, like we we struggled through it, so should you attitude. Yeah, do you yeah. think they told these fucking kids to stop buying Starbucks and no more avocado toast and maybe to get some boots or straps and fucking pull them up? Yeah, stop with the goddamn podcast. Stop buying microphones, you goddamn youth. Definitely not talking about us. No, not at all. So, like, the Everybody point is that after us, you say it, everyone shut the after fuck up. us, shut up. Yeah, December twenty twenty one. After that, don't buy a microphone ever, ever. <laughs> so the point, though, is that after all of this, that uh, by linking their protests to the campesinos, protest leaders were able to um, basically disrupt political rhetoric in the nineteen sixties. So, for context, the Partido Revoluciano. That's Italian. Revoluciano. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to say this now. Revolutionario. 
Yes. Revolucionario Institution. The Revolutionary Institution Party. We'll just go with that. Fucking Twitter. Um, yeah. Claimed the privilege of speaking for peasants. Their whole shtick had been like the party existed and that they knew what was best for the campesinos. They were the voice. They were the vanguard, one might say, for the campesinos. So I think I've seen this movie before where a party speaks for people under coercion that if you don't support them, the other guys will be worse. How how close is that? It sounds like you're coming after my people, the Italians, and our mobs. <laughs> I'm always coming after the Italians, but that's unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't the B episode, guys. Come on. We've moved way on from the Italian bees. Uh, well, how do we not make a Sopranos me a joke throughout the entire B series? Like seriously, how did that happen? I'm so disappointed in us. I, I thought we, I thought we were being classy. Are we? Soprano. Have we ever been classy? First off, I mean, I I work. I know how to tie a tie. Like we could do instead of like the Carniolan bees, we could have done Carniola, but like with that thick jersey accent caniola god damn it we're an hour in let's finish the episode boys sorry sorry. so anyways the point was that like people had presumed that the politicians decade-long celebration about this agricultural progress from the green revolution you know 1943 when the mexican agricultural program uh had begun you know the plan chapingo in 1967 that the pri knew what they were doing and um there's this giant redemption moment that was going to come now, these strikers in 1967 said, hold up, this is not the case. They told the public that the work celebrated by PRI leaders, as well as those in the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and all of those other institutions who had advised and financed Mexico's quarter decade of agronomy, who had financed Mexico's quarter decade of advances in agronomy, were basically smoke and mirrors and debt rather than any material changes in the countryside. Okay, so they saw the rabbit in the hat from, I don't know what kind of metaphor to make. And the rabbit was capitalism. Yeah. Something. I don't don't know. They saw through the the magician's tricks. I was trying to play off the smoke and mirrors. I failed miserably. Yeah, no. I'm so glad we've left all that behind. Now there's no way that uh, we would have uh, smoke and mirrors and debt rather than actual change. That's (laughs) not not in 2023. We did away with it. And that's that's really cool for us. Yeah, I'm very happy for us. Things are really looking good in the future. So after all this, like the striking and the shit talking and the public forums and the funding through the communities, talks for actually ending this conflict began on June 28th, when a handful of professors in Chapingo met with the SAG vice minister, Ricardo Acosta. Now, Acosta met with Ephraim and some other colleagues, and instead of gathering information or building goodwill, Our good friend Ricardo Acosta basically told the professors to go fuck themselves and to get their shit situated at the school. He explained to them that the state couldn't intervene and, you know, Sovietize a private college because of legal procedures, because obviously it was because they're all communists. Right. And unlike, I don't know, everything they had done to that point around agriculture, that, that was just like a step too far. Yeah, we can't make everyone buy all this equipment and, you know, rebuild an entire industry. But listen, funding a school? No way, man. No way. So uh, after fielding a few comments from professors, including a frame, he quickly adjourned the meeting and basically told them, get their shit figured out. And unsurprisingly, things heated up. 
On July 1st, student representatives and faculty mediation committee members discussed a plan for federalizing Escobar. Ephraim noted in the plans that the government could take over the college, pay an indemnity to the Escobars, the family that owned the school, and form a council that oversaw the management of a new institution minus the influence of its former owners. Basically, he was saying there is a way forward. Okay, so they were going to blow it up and pick up the pieces, or try to anyway. Proverbially. They wouldn't literally blow it up, Elliot. No, I don't mean physically. I meant, yes, proverbially. Proverbially. As Job said in the Bible. Was his name Job? I thought it was Job. I thought there was a job, isn't there? It's Job. Matt. Job. Yeah. That was close. I, I read the Bible. Come on. Yeah, I know. That was my favorite comic book as a kid. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so so despite this, you know, really fantastic progress that was going on, things continued to get worse in the next couple of days. According to an operative that was at a student rally on July 6th, about 500 students heard about classmates from vocational school number seven being, in quote, savagely beaten by Granaderos, which were members of the federal district's police force known for its excessive use of force during the 1960s. I wonder if our fucking police got training from them. And those students that heard about it gathered outside the Ministry of Agriculture the night before. Just camping out, doing student stuff. Doing typical student stuff, just, you know, rallying. Yeah, they were learning to take a beating. Oof. Wow. Uh, You're beating this to a a dead horse, Elliot. (laughs) 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 See what I did there? Bringing it back. Yeah, you tenderized my dinner. (laughs) All right, so people that were in in Chapingo also heard rumors that the army planned to invade Chapingo within 24 hours. News about the beatings outside SAG offices and the impending raid prompted about 300 protesters to begin a march in Mexico City streets as well as the people outside the Ministry of Agriculture. The next morning, handbells with words about revolution from a small group calling itself the Revolutionary Leftist Student Movement circulated. Another spy report from the same day indicated that more schools voted for a stoppage of activities to support Escobar and Chapingo, and that some students spent the night of July 6th building homemade bombs. Oh shit, so there's escalation on both sides. It's escalating quickly. Yeah. And when I said blow it up, proverbially god damn it i can't say that word proverbially when i when i said blow it up they're physically doing it now with homemade bombs and shit yeah you know why not i mean it's an agricultural school they gotta have like some fertilizer around they must have so much fucking fertilizer (laughs) this is the wrong school to fuck with was it petrol was it petrol based i don't uh yeah green revolution it it was oh yeah oh that's awesome yeah, they they were ready. If any sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation, but you could say that introducing the petrochemical fertilizer, the uh, Green Revolution had sowed the seeds of its own destruction. The Green Revolution was exploding, is mm-hmm. what you're saying. Yes. The point we're getting to here is that the end game seemed pretty obvious to everyone. The army would eventually invade Chapingo. It's just whether or not they would you know, retaliate accordingly or appropriately. Now, before the worst occurred, our boy Zoldo 
very much publicly lambasted the Ministry of Agriculture's lack of patience, suggesting that the time officials had given the committee to try to resolve things was clearly short and failed to give Chapingueros time to deliberate over whether to return to normalcy or to wait to hear back from Chihuahua. Basically, he was using his pulpit to uh, write public letters to make people like ease the tension and like make a point that like give it some time mm-hmm. he was just uh he was preaching calm yeah he was preaching calm by making fun of the obvious fucking person to make fun of this asshole who wanted nothing to do with even like considering the concerns of students Zola also uh, suggested in his reports from his meetings that sag leaders motivation for their training of agronomists Unprepared to help peasants was to ensure that the groups who helped design and finance agricultural planning in Mexico remain satisfied, aka the Americans. Plan Chapingo, you know, we've talked about the fact that like it's funded by Rockefeller and Ford and all these other people. It also received funding from what's called the Inter-American Development Bank, which is what's called a point four institution. Point four. So what that means is that it was basically Cold War funding to stop communism. Uh, classic. Yeah, so like it was basically the government, the U.S. government just fucking found money when it was like for the point of stopping communism. There weren't any questions asked. It was just like, you need money to stop communism? Here you go. We have, we literally have a fucking bank for that with every currency type in it. We're ready. We got it. So when he said basically that, if you recall, that management by an authority fundamentally dedicated to other activities... It represented Hernandez's way of saying that Acosta and the other folks involved with him were in service to basically Washington, D.C. Money talks and puppets and stuff. Yeah, it's the American way. It's, you know, it's honestly surprising they didn't have apple pie at that school. Now, within the next two days, at least 15 schools refused to hold classes and things worsened when 2,000 members of an IPN counterstrike attacked Escobar supporters by driving a bus through a barricade in front of one of the college's entrances. In another incident, an informant reported that some strikers spent the afternoon bringing gasoline into a building to prepare bombs and planned to visit SAG offices the next morning. Then on July 11th, at least 23 schools initiated a 72-hour shutdown, during which the Escobar issue needed to be resolved or more chaos would begin. A report two days later indicated the size of the strike that the Mexican government had on its hands. It was about a quarter of a million students across the country that were outside of classes in support of the agricultural college attendees. Damn, okay, so there's an actual epicenter and then there's a ripple effect going on around the country. Just farmers getting ready to fuck shit up. That sounds scary as hell, bro. (laughs) (laughs) They got them pitchforks out and they are ready to roll. Pitchforks and petrol bombs. You guys got me scared about the fertilizer, man. They they were ready to fucking roll. And like, you know, it's 99% about like the mental game. And if you're already there, like, it's game over. So like this massive shutdown was very short. The strike actually ended very quickly after this and peacefully on Saturday, July 15th. Earlier that morning, strikers in the government's office in Chihuahua had reached a settlement. Students would immediately be transferred to the University of Chihuahua for classes over the next couple months. In 1968, the same public university would open a new agricultural college. The government's office would help with their move and financial assistance. 
the governor of Chihuahua promised to ask the Ministry of Agriculture for funds with which to give a raise to teachers at the new institution. A student government council would figure out how to proceed with problems at Hermanos Escobar, and tuition would be reduced at Hermanos Escobar. Okay, so all in all, it sounds like they got most or almost everything that the students wanted. It's almost like the power of an organized mass has the power to dictate policy when they're organized. When they're organized. Wild concept. I guess. Or you could just stand your ground. And when the state comes to say you can't do that and make it look like there's going to be blood on their hands, then maybe just give that a shot. Maybe. (laughs) Oh, God. Ruby Ridge. No. (laughs) Yeah, we're about to get shut down. Sorry, everyone. I feel like I just heard someone click in on the Zoom call. Uh, so Ephraim obviously had a role in this. He was very involved in those tense early days. He um, basically tried to prevent a student massacre in Chapinga. And one of the things that he did do was he told our, our good friend Acosta that part of the problem was that students and staff deserved better treatment. Unsurprisingly, a few months later, in January of 1968, Hernandez became aware that his time at Chapingo was going to be cut short and that he would be traveling outside of Mexico for quite a while. Okay, so what you're saying was Solo did what every, I guess, great professor does, is they give up their career so that the kids can reach for their own future and create their own next generation. So what I'm saying is he was Tejas, Teacher Jesus. You could say that. You could say that. You don't have to say that. But I mean, it's, it's way easier to, all right. So I'm not, on, I'm not on Jesus' side, but it's way easier to give up a career than it is like the whole <laughs> life. I'm just saying. Uh, okay, whatever. That's, now, a, that's I, a new bumper sticker. I'm not on Jesus' side, but. <laughs> but he made some good points here. But uh, I've been a better Christian my whole life than people who go to church. It's not hard to do, to be honest. Like, I know. I'm just saying. Uh, so yeah, he he was um, treated as in, an insubordinate for his activities and trying to basically stop mass murder. You know, terrible life decision on his part. Man. And uh, between July and January, Acosta had arranged for the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center to hire Zolo, put him on sabbatical to collect agricultural seeds in South America. Now, this was supposed to be a punishment, but it actually was really life-changing for Zolo. Yeah, this sounds like another chapter, not like an ending to this dude's story. How much more does he have? Yeah, uh, he's one of those people that if you cut up his life into different sections, they would all be like worthwhile success stories of like I, I think great you botanists. Said, we said that in episode one. You were right. Did we? So, yeah. So um, I, I don't know why I doubted you. you Never doubt me. We gotta stop doubting Andy. I doubt you all the time. I'm, that's literally what I'm here for is to doubt him. I'm like Tejas right over here. <laughs> Teacher Jesus, come on. We're gonna make that a thing. So the You can try. <laughs> Can't wait to put you up on that fucking cross, buddy. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so um he was sent to the backwoods of Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. And throughout nineteen sixty eight, he was on these seed collection trips where he really started to like hone in a lot of his hypothesis. And when he returned to Mexico, he identified as an ethnobotanist. In South America, Hernandez found what agricultural investigation in Mexico had been missing for decades, the presence of people in what he considered a dynamic natural setting. In his words, I will quote, because it's a very long one, but it's very, very valuable. It seems that if we start with the consideration of man and his culture, 
the relationship of man and plant never assumes its proper dimension, and we soon lose ourselves in man's beliefs, fears, and fantasies, so that his place in the ecosystem is never understood. We must, for this reason, start with the larger reality, the ecosystem, and work down to man and plants. Viewed from this aspect, this course, i.e. ethnobotany, would review man's role in the ecosystem and the consequences of the numerous interactions set up. A search for the biological roots of these relationships should lead to the understanding which should serve, in turn, to clarify future tendencies. This guy's spitting. Yeah, seriously. And he and Tom Wessels have both found ways to say it more eloquently than we ever could. So why don't they have fucking microphones? Why are we doing this? I mean... Why am I a here? A frame is dead. So there's that. Bring them back. We have science. Bring- <laughs> We have science. You kidding me? A a great podcaster gone before his time. (laughs) Uh, No, that is the bumper sticker. We just take famous people and do that. A great podcaster gone before his time. I'm not on Jesus, but am a podcaster. (laughs) Wait, what? Is it one sticker? Yes, one one sticker. We need to make like... Why didn't Jesus have a podcast about botany? Come on. It would have been slamming, dude. I feel like every episode we pitch bumper stickers and we gotta make just like a limited run of like three for each. (laughs) For us, mostly, yes. Fair enough. I'm, I'm with it. Yeah, so his point was that like agriculture that he'd been like, he'd spent his whole life talking about agriculture, right? And the point you wanted to make was that it was this interactive process and that it was conducted in a larger space than just a person in a seed in that little plot of ground, right? There's live actors and natural processes involved. And consequences evolve. And consequences. Now, when Hernandez returned back to Mexico, he began meeting uh, with people that were researching this in the 70s. In particular, uh, he started getting involved in 1972. Among the scholars at the gatherings were like people that would continue to be like large names in social sciences in the 1980s and 90s. It was at this point in his career that he'd really bonded his botany interests with anthropology, much like he'd gotten a taste of that with the milpa. And he began to develop personal and professional relationships with a handful of people who would collectively reinterpret peasants' role in Mexican and Latin American history. And at this time, he also was able to return to the classroom. Absolute godfather status. You can't stop him. You can only make him stronger. Yeah, basically. You know, he's like Kanye West, but the good version. Kanye best, one might say. I want to throw stuff at you. (laughs) I literally (laughs) watch you cover your mouth as I said that, Elliot. I threw up in my mouth a little bit. uh, This guy was gross. I can't with you. I need some ginger. (laughs) I've got a set on my stomach. I got it's bubbling. Uh, so all, all all of these projects were part of a larger program known as EITAT, or in English, Traditional Agricultural Technology, what we probably call like tech in the United States today. Students began with uh, intensive discussions in the classroom. Then the students ventured to the fields. Hernandez would drop off pupils in uh, various remote places where they began systematizing the agricultural knowledge of several indigenous groups. Students had to immerse themselves in the community where they lived. It wasn't simply enough to spend a day. This approach proved to be a hit at Chapingo and the Colegio de Postgraduados, 
I didn't say that right. Uh, not important. It's, it's Italian. Yeah. To be a hit at Chapingo, and many people learned from the peasants, which was what he always cared about. Now, Hernandez's ethnobotanical methodology seminar became basically like the class to take at the Colegio after 1972. Soon after, basically all of the other agricultural colleges in Mexico followed this model. Ethnobotany became a topic panel at national conferences. By 1977, Hernandez led well-funded projects that explored the smallest details of traditional agriculture and more complicated projects related to agroecosystems. Now, many of his students would go on to publish studies that detailed how peasants practiced what they today call sustainable agriculture and how they had an acute knowledge of certain plants that prevented or helped cure things like modern illnesses. Peasant students discovered had intricate ways of conserving seed biodiversity and complicated methods for overcoming environmental constraints like farming alongside a steep mountain or farming with a lack of irrigation. By the 1980s, Hernandez knew that people had finally figured out what he'd been telling them this whole time. Yeah, I mean, the quote that says, I no longer have to scream and yell too much to get people to understand me. I mean, that speaks to me and I'm sure a lot of people. I'm screaming all the time. Yeah, I didn't read that one. <laughs> yeah, that, that must feel pretty good. To finally stop screaming? Yeah, yeah. I'd, have some, I'd have some tea. Have some tea. <laughs> Efrain. Sit, sit down with a nice book. That's what I do. Yeah. And um, at the same time, part of why his status continued to erupt was that the Green Revolution, despite having that like really great period of grain exports, it basically disappeared by the late 1970s. And uh, the country kind of returned to basically where it was before, except like with this whole new industry. And, you know, history kind of came full circle. We look at today and a lot of Americans are going south to learn about agriculture from these researchers who had claimed the peasants as their teachers. I mean, this does kind of sound like a good movie. It'd be better than these three episodes. I know that, but we should definitely wow. invest in it. There'd be way fewer horse jokes. I'm just saying. Why would there be fewer horse jokes? I mean, the horse can still be part of the movie. We could put as, yeah, we could make the whole thing a horse joke. It's, is everything a horse? Is it like a sandwich? Everything's a horse? The horse went in the sandwich. Ooh, I mean, if you put well a horse between two pieces of bread, it's a sandwich. I don't know. Okay. We've talked, th this This is kind of a throwback. We've talked about giraffes uh -huh. and their meat potential. Mm -hmm. I feel like horses are kind of like a... Forbidden meat? But, I don't know. I feel like they're like, I, I are they a last resort? Because they, you know, when you hear about people eating their horses on like the brink of starvation, is it because the horses are too useful or are they, like, really bad meat? I don't think they're bad meat. Like, I think they actually are, in certain parts of the world, really common to eat. But, uh, yeah, I think it's more of a, yes, they're very utilitarian and they require very little. Like, mm -hmm. they, they're still basically feral if you let them be. Like, you have to break in a horse because it's still fucking feral. But uh, one last thing on our good boy. You would think he would ride off into the sunset at this point, but he actually continued to do research. He spent some time back in the United States working on avocado root rot and uh, was very instrumental in the modern avocado industry because of his work. So, you know, you can just casually throw that into his uh, list of incredible things that he did. He ended up ultimately dying in 1991 and forever left a mark on ethnobotany and, you know, changed the course of global agricultural history. NBD. You know, just sort of like a normal standard career trajectory. As one has. 
Yeah, just like, I don't know. That's what happens. Yeah, I just, I'm mad I learned about Old McDonald. That was the only farmer I could name off the top of my head when I was a kid. Should have learned about this guy. Should have. Before we wrap up, a special, special thanks to the thesis that was key in putting this episode together because it literally was like the sources on it were personal interviews with people. So like this could not exist without it. It's listed in our show notes. I think I referenced it the first episode because I did not write the notes in front of me of the guy's name. So if you're looking to learn more about Zolo, there was a decent amount we cut out. That's the place to look. It exists basically to one guy. So thank you. Yeah. Great work. Because you can't find it in English anywhere. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you do. We have a little bit more thorough information on our Substack where the content piece of this is written out. Uh, like I said, with a little bit more detail, go check that out. Also, if you guys enjoyed this kind of episode or this series, like where we've done this multi-part thing, we're going to be doing a little bit more of this. So hopefully you guys really enjoy it because it's really fun for us. We get to have a little bit more fun with it. And it's really cool to see these stories that have been kind of buried in history kind of come back to life. Yeah, you don't kind of hear about it. And I love learning about this stuff. Yeah, it, uh, it's it's really just like you hear about these like big names, but it's ultimately like the people that really unknown that have had just a massive impact on our agricultural history. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't bore these guys too much. So that means uh, it's worth worthwhile story. Next, what are we doing next? You guys know? I know what we're recording next. I don't know what's being released next. I'm going to bed next. I'm tired. Okay. It is late for you. Yeah, so this is a long episode. We haven't had one of these in a while. So we'll be back next week with some, I think, another three-parter. Is it Denmark that we're doing? I don't know. I should just fucking look. Maybe Iceland, maybe Denmark. I don't know. I don't know. I'll look just so I can plug it. Hold on. Listen, just stay tuned. This is the Poor Pearls Almanac. We appreciate you. We appreciate all the farmers out there. And we appreciate horses. And if we're hungry enough, we will eat them. But We will fucking eat them. Haven't been that hungry in a while, so I'm an obese American. It'll be a while before I get that hungry. Yeah, next episode is Erna Bennett, another ecologist geneticist story that is very thoroughly buried in history. So I'm really excited about that. If you like the show, support us on Patreon, Substack, all those cool things. At this point, the seeds for our native seed project should be out. If you are growing them, please send us pictures. We want to see our cool seeds thriving in their new environment. Hell yeah. Until next time, this is Andy. This is Elliot. This is Matt. And we're the Poor Pearls Almanac. Peace. <laughs>